All right, everybody. So we have Brian Haycock with us today. Uh, he's a pretty well-known guy in this industry. He's been doing it for a very long time. Most well-known for HST, hypertrophy-specific training that came out in 2000. Uh, so welcome, Brian. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And so for people who don't know you or haven't heard of you before, can you just give a little bit more of your background and how you got into all this? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I think probably like a lot of your listeners, I was in the fitness, the body muscles from a very young age. Uh, my folks got me my first weight set when I was eight. And so I started lifting weights in the basement, you know, doing those curls every day. And as I got older, <clears throat> it's time to go to college. I had to decide, well, gee, what am I going to do? I only loved bodybuilding. And uh, I had competed in my first show in 1985. That may age me a little bit, but um, uh, nothing serious. And actually, the stage really wasn't why I loved bodybuilding. I wasn't into any of the exhibition uh, side of it, but... Um, I decided to go into medicine first, and I did my pre-med and took my MCATs, and when I was doing my interns and <clears throat> doing my rotations and stuff, uh, I heard, perhaps similar to you, a lot of physicians would tell me, you know, you know, insurance these days is really hampering my ability to mm -hmm. practice medicine the way I want, and I have to see so many patients, I really can't spend the time I want with all of them. And they were really expressing a lot of unhappiness with the lifestyle, uh, not with the subject matter. They love being doctors, but um, they just didn't like the lifestyle. So I was also doing exercise and sports science at the time uh, in school. And also, I finished a psychology degree. And so I decided to go into exercise physiology and... Um, Many, many years later, I think I had a total of 13 years as a full-time student in the university. I finished my PhD, and, and all the while, when I first uh, started doing my undergrad, um, I began, when the internet was just getting started, I was hanging out on message boards. This is before Facebook, Twitter, any of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And there's a website called Mesamorphosis, uh, ran by guy named Millard Baker, and I just started answering questions on people's site because at that time you had bodybuilding magazine was bro science. I mean, that literally was it. And after a while, he sent me an email. He says, hey, would you mind writing for a magazine? I want to start a, an online or an e-zine at the time. I said, yeah, sure, of course. And this is kind of different because at that time, this is just before you could find anything you wanted on the Internet. I mean, Wikipedia was, was going, but it wasn't like the joke that it is today. It's like, oh, you got that off of Wikipedia. This is, right. you know, in the, in the early 90s. And I was in the university, so I had access to the medical libraries, which I was using for my own purposes. And this was also, coincidentally, about the time that the AIDS epidemic had began which brought on a bunch of new research into muscle physiology and to try to understand wasting and how the body controls muscle mass. And this is the first time really anybody had taken seriously this notion of bodybuilding per se. You know, what is it that controls muscle mass? So I began to feed these, this, you know, early research uh, science on muscle physiology into the articles and it became very, very popular 
and Millard was able to round up a bunch of other very good authors. Lyle McDonald, I think, is still around. You're probably familiar with Lyle sure. McDonald. He does a lot of diet stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was just really, really popular, and I just continued to do that through my college career. I ended up writing for all of the print mags as well, Muscular Development, Muscle and Fitness, Muscle and Fitness Hers, Flex, you name it. Um, some of them pay better than others, just a warning for any of you aspiring writers. Um, and that's kind of how I got my start. Then one day I was noticing that we had relied so heavily on strength training, primarily from like Eastern Bloc, you know, East Germany, Bulgaria. And we were essentially trying to borrow research from these state-funded research programs for Olympic lifters and saying, well, how can we apply that to bodybuilding? right? And some of it fit, some of it didn't, but you could see how the the common knowledge at the time about bodybuilder was heavily influenced by strength training. Well, we didn't have any other research. And so at just this time, the hypertrophy research started to appear. I had just finished going through Schiff and Verkashensky's super training, which was a very uh, popular text on strength training at the time. And I began to write a series of articles trying to separate out what was strength specific and what was hypertrophy specific. And by the end of it, I went, you know, there's enough just to train in a certain way that's ignoring what would needed to be done to maximize strength and instead only do what you want to do to maximize size. And that's where I came up with hypertrophy specific training. Um, but to a lot of people's uh, consternation, I kept insisting that this isn't a program. Mm -hmm. This is a set of principles that you follow in conducting your own training, you know, and and everybody's like, well, just tell me what to do. Just tell me what to do. Completely missing the point that uh, your, your target is a moving target. You adapt, you change all the time. So what you do one day in the gym may not be ideal to do the next day and uh, still I've stuck to my guns. It's a set of principles, it's not a program. I did offer a template Mm -hmm. to try to say, you know, here's as close as I can get to a one size fits all program that people can apply and get started and then take it from there in their own direction. Awesome. Yeah, so you're very extensive background. I actually didn't know um, that much about you, especially the the med school aspect. I didn't know you were planning on that. Yeah, yeah. At the time, they didn't want any more orthopedic surgeons. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they said, we want some ladies, doctors that will go out and be general, you know, runny nose, sore throat docs out in the boonies. And right, you're right. Not, you're not really our ideal candidate. I was actually the most bland cookie cutter, we have too many of you candidates. Right, yeah. And, and that was kind of, I don't want to get political, but it was at the beginning of really pushing to get a shift in who's becoming doctors. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I was okay. Like I say, I had gotten the feedback from the doctors I was with and it wasn't their dream job. You know, Mm -hmm. they thought it was, but it didn't turn out to be what they had hoped. And I thought, well, I'll just take a chance and I'll go PhD route, which one of my advisors warned me. It says, why are you doing your PhD? You'll get paid way less (laughs) if you get a PhD than if you just get a master's and go out and go to work. But, um, 
I've made it work uh, mainly through the dietary supplement industry. So yeah, my my money comes from working for dietary supplement companies, primarily mm-hmm. on the claims evaluation and regulatory side to help them understand what they can and can't say about their products. Yeah. Well, cool. um, not that they adhere to my advice, but <laughs> right, right. Right. So uh, before we get too much into the questions, I wanted to just mention the charity for today. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that was LDS Philanthropies. So could you just kind of explain why you chose that charity? Yeah, well, obviously I'm a member of the LDS Church, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do it to a charity, I should probably do a good job. And and I looked up LDS Philanthropies, and I was really impressed by the fact that 100% of the donation goes to the actual effort. There is no pay for bureaucratic positions, CEOs, chair people. There, there are no paid people with that organization. So... I was glad that 100% went to it, and they're so global in their reach. Mm-hmm. So they do everything from, you know, putting together wheelchairs for kids in impoverished countries that can't afford them to food, education, clean water, wherever. So right. I thought cool. that was a good place to put the money. Awesome. And, of course, we'll have a link down below if anybody wants to personally donate as well. Um, so yesterday I was actually doing a podcast with Eric Helms and Scott Stevenson and Eric brought you up and HST. Uh, and oh, he, was did. Just, he did. Yeah. And I've never personally was, met him. So I'm always curious when I watch these guys on YouTube or whatever, I said, do you, do you, do you know who I am? Yeah. Well, that's a little egotistical. I know, but being so old, you wonder when, when you're fading, you know, am right. I fading away completely or am I still relevant? So. Well, you know, and we had talked about how, because it had, you said it came out in 2000. I got into this maybe 2004, 2005. Um, but I definitely remember, you know, reading through the articles. I remember the webpage. I think it's still identical to how it was for the most yeah. part. <laughs> and he was saying how it was just very much ahead of its time and how the research that we've had in the last two to three years really corroborates all the stuff that you said. And just like I said, how ahead of its time it was. Oh, so I'm thank curious. you, Eric. Yeah. I'll yeah. have to send him a thank you for that. <laughs> Um, but I'm curious, you know, given that it was put out over a decade ago, are there any significant changes in your beliefs about it compared to then? Or is it pretty much you think still the same principles would apply? Yeah. Uh, now you mentioned that. And we're approaching 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, well, and, and people do ask me that question. Um, I actually did my, my graduate work in blood flow restricted training. Oh. So you're familiar with, with that. Sure. And so uh, we had kind of an interesting outcome. Uh, my my research question was, does inter- intermittent occlusion have the same effect as continuous occlusion if you can match the time that the muscle has been occluded? Mm-hmm. My argument being that metabolic stress was the key player here and not muscle activation, which... The current thinking is still it's muscle activation, but I have reason to believe that that's that's not the issue. Anyway, uh, interestingly, my <clears throat> results were confounded by non-responders and responders. So you had some subjects that just took to it and just started growing like a weed, and other subjects that by the end of the program were actually smaller than when they had started. And this is a, a topic that really isn't discussed a lot in hypertrophy research um, that needs to be because there are genuine reasons why 
you know, not everybody who goes into a gym and does some sort of ideal program is going to have the same experience. And a lot of this is what leads to this constant influx of, hey, I, I made something new. This will work. I made something new. This will work. It's almost like the weight loss industry. You know, everybody's tries something for a while, feels like they fail, and then they're looking for something else. Um, we discovered that, and it was corroborated with other research, that there definitely are some people who are not growing like the average person. And, and if you know who they are, you need to either remove them from your subject pool because they will completely mess up your results. And if you look at existing research, one thing you see in a lot of hypertrophy research is huge um, standard deviations. And these huge standard deviations are coming from those subjects that just are not responding. Mm -hmm. So you, you're lucky to hit, you know, a, a significance in your statistics because of these this group. Um, anyway, uh, I got off on quite a tangent there. What was the original question? Well, we were just talking about if you think there are significant differences oh, what in the changed? principles. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, muscle hasn't changed. So the, when you're on the level of, of applicable information, you know, not talking about, you know, microRNAs and all these kinds of different things that happen in the tissue after training, uh, because the muscle hasn't really changed, the principles haven't really changed. And I've even been fortunate enough that a lot of the things that I proposed for HST simply from experience in a bit of educated intuition later turned out to be confirmed with research. And of course, I've always been happy to see those as they pop up saying, you know, cause you wait, if you're, right. if you're proposing something that there isn't a lot of support for, you kind of waiting for something to come out to prove you wrong, then you got to come out and talk your way out of it. But, but I've been lucky. Yeah. Uh, the, the hypertrophy from higher reps uh, is an HST, uh, Strategic deconditioning, as we may talk about in a minute, this period of letting the tissue decondition so it becomes sensitive again to the training stimulus has been shown to be effective in research. Um, and, and the primacy of load, just having to have the weight there um, are really the, the three issues that I, I really kind of put as the foundation of the program that have turned out to be true. Gotcha. Awesome, man. Um, yeah, and like like you said, muscle itself hasn't changed, and I think so many people are searching for, like you mentioned before, the golden routine. You know that that perfect mm -hmm. thing. And I think they have to look at these principles here. I am interested to hear what you had to say there. You were kind of talking about people like the uh, the mechanisms behind hypertrophy, and a lot of people yeah. there is some debate now: is it mechanical tension? Is it muscle damage? You know, there's right. hormonal influence. Um, so it sounds like you maybe have a different opinion than some others. So I'd like to hear that. Well, let's start with, with the basics. Um, probably the most commonly agreed upon, whether they're accurate or not, is yet to be determined, but agreed upon mechanisms from a, a macro standpoint would be mechanical load. So that would be not effort, not to be confused with effort, but how much absolute weight is actually hanging off the end of your arm, right? And that mechanical strain is going to translate into the tissues themselves, regardless of whether you're pulling on it or not. So that's mechanical load. Then you have metabolic load or metabolic stress. 
and that's where you get a dramatic change in the environment inside the muscle cell when the muscles begin to work. Uh, think of it as revving your car in a closed garage. I mean, it just fills up with, with byproducts of, of burning fuel. Um, there's another one, muscle swelling. So cell swelling is, is thought to maybe, we know that uh, cell swelling does activate anabolic pathways, but this process of the pump, the metabolic byproducts uh, accumulating within the cell can cause an osmotic, osmotic effect of drawing water into the cell. And I think a lot of people have noticed maybe a day or two after they train, they're a little fuller. And then after four or five days, they start to feel flat, you know, and panic and run back in the gym. But, um, and then the acute hormonal response. And I should start with that one. Uh, the acute hormonal response does not contribute to the growth stimulus from a, from a workout. There's no reason to tailor your training to get a, a boost in growth hormone or testosterone or, or whatever it may be. It is not going to impact how, how much you grow. We have plenty of data now to show that that's the case, but we have a lot of, and I don't want to call it bro science. There's a level above bro, bro science that is um, groupthink, you know, carryover groupthink amongst academics mm -hmm. that are kind of too lazy to go back and see if it still holds true. And they will perpetuate these things in the intros of their papers, in the studies. Oh, right. let's do a little research, a little background before we get started on my study. And we know the hormonal response is important, you know, testosterone growth hormone are key anabolic hormones. It's like, yes, they are key anabolic hormones, but they are not impacting the growth of the tissue. And are you saying thing, that the uh, growth hormone response from squats isn't gonna make my arms huge? No, <laughs> but interestingly enough, when I was doing um, uh, my research for, for my own work in uh, blood flow restricted training, there is some studies that show that if you do an ineffective bicep workout and followed immediately with blood flow restricted training on the quadricep, it will make that ineffective workout more effective on the bicep. Really? Yeah, so they compared, they trained the left side, right, with an ineffective workout. And then on separate days, they did the other side, ineffective workout, but then they added blood flow restricted training on the leg immediately following it. And over the course of six to eight weeks or so, the bicep that was trained with the leg grew, and the one that wasn't didn't. And so what we have is we have a systemic impact and I, I believe it very might, might be lactic acid uh, that is going systemically and having an impact on whatever potential growth signals there might be in other parts of the body. Um, wow. the, re the reason I say that is because there is research that supplementing an animal with lactic acid and caffeine makes them grow better. So mm -hmm. just bumping up lactic acid levels seems to be anabolic. So that's that's my thing. I don't think it's growth hormone. I sure. think it may be something like lactic acid, but there is something to the larger body movements and how that might uh, facilitate growth elsewhere in the body. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Uh, and you know, something I, I forget where I heard you say this, but um, I've heard you say that HST won't necessarily get you bigger than you otherwise would have been, but the hope is that it gets you there faster. 
Right. And I really liked hearing you say that because that's something that I'd not really heard anybody say, but something I had thought of a couple of years ago, probably, maybe even longer than that. And I just thought like, you know, everybody's got this routine, but you see massive guys doing wildly different things. And we're all trying to find, you know, what can we do to improve? But in my experience and opinion and kind of looking around, it just seems like, you know, if you're doing everything perfectly from the get go, you're probably going to hit close to your max size in about five years or so, you know, yes. at least around that. Yes. And maybe a perfect routine is going to get you there in four and, you know, a B plus routine is going to get you there in seven years. Right. But it, it seems like, I mean, would you agree that as long as you have the basic principles in there over time, you're going to eventually get to wherever you're going to get. A- absolutely. And, and, you know, people have asked, you know, well, if you're putting forth HST as being the best way to do it, why do people grow on other routines? They shouldn't be growing if you supposedly have the answer to all this. And, you know, I remind them that, well, these principles that are a part of hypertrophy-specific training manifest themselves in everybody's training to some degree or another. I mean, for example, everybody's lifting a weight. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter whether it's the ideal weight. It's going to cause some response if you're consistent. And uh, we do also have a cap genetically to how big we're going to be able to get. And it's not just one thing. It's not just your natural testosterone levels. Uh, There's a lot of different factors for each individual, and they all contribute to how much muscle mass their body is going to be able to maintain under natural circumstances without any help. Um, And the idea about focusing solely on those parts of the training stimulus that most closely relate to the muscle growing is not, one, not the only way to do it, and it's not going to make you bigger than you otherwise would unless your current training is just crappy, right? Mm -hmm. You've maxed out on a crappy routine. Okay, yes, this may make you bigger. But if you're really consistent, and of course your food, everybody seems to forget how important food is, it will get you there faster, but I don't know that it would bring you beyond your genetic potential. That's that's just set in the cards we were dealt. Right. Yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> so that um, was a good that was a good intuitive observation that you made, and and it's probably a little discouraging to a lot of people, but you know it's just a fact yeah. of life. Yeah, it, I think it's one of those things we just don't want to accept it. You know, mm-hmm. we you know you like to think. I mean, like I said, I've been doing this fifteen years, and it probably wasn't until year. 10 or 11, where I was like, you know, I'm probably not going to get any bigger, <laughs> unfortunately, you know, until yeah. we start being able to modify genes or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, er- early, early on in my um, training, I, I went to failure on every set because yeah. I just had the mindset of progressing. And then after that, I was like, oh, man, that was so stupid. Like, why did I do that? And now um, I'm guessing you're familiar with the recent like high volume Schoenfeld study they had where they yep. went up to like 30, 45 sets and all of those were to failure. So there's definitely a lot of controversy now on, you know, what's right. And again, kind of speaking to before, I, I think either one can work, you know, it's just how you, you modify it to work for you. Um, but you were one of the people who kind of got the idea out there of not always trained to failure. And in fact, right. at least in the, uh, the template that you put out there, you're really only hitting those max sets, the last maybe two workouts yeah. of like a mesocycle. So right. um, how do you coach people who are so used to like, I need to progress, I need to get new PRs all the time. Right. How do you coach somebody like that to step back and realize like, I might have a whole week of workouts that aren't that difficult? 
Um, I think <clears throat> if somebody cares about their training and they're not just into this because they they want abs or they want to look good for spring break or whatever, but somebody who's serious about uh, changing and building their body, education first and explain to them in a logical way why training to failure is not necessary. And so that in their head, when they're questioning themselves, whether they're working out hard enough, they at least have an answer for themselves to say, this isn't necessary because these other things are still occurring. Uh, training to failure is one of those things in the notion of being hypertrophy specific and strength specific. Training to failure is strength specific. So if you don't train to failure, uh, strength gains will be compromised, just period. Uh, because that stress on the nervous system specifically causes it to, to adapt and enhance itself, which then allows you to generate more force through your nervous system, you know, and you've certainly experienced, um, something related what I would call the training age. But if you get untrained subjects and you say, okay, we want you to, we're going to test your max and we want you to try as hard as you can. Well, their mind and body interprets hard as I can far sooner than somebody who's actually experienced trying as hard as they can. Mm -hmm. So they literally are incapable of generating the force that the tissue is capable of generating because of this mind, you know, it's complicated, but uh, they, they don't know how to get 100% maximum voluntary contraction. You have to practice it and you have to train at it, you know. And <clears throat> explaining to them that one, training to failure simply means that the nervous system is, is ran out, it's done, right? Uh, assuming it's not lactic acid and pain, you know, like leg extensions burn like crazy. But also if they say, yes, but I have to have maximum activation of all my motor units. Well, then you can show them research that says, well, you have maximum activation of motor units before those motor units actually fail. They don't come in after you fail. It depends upon your level of effort, right? So if you're doing a 15 rep max, you have maximum motor unit activation, usually around 11 and 12. You're using all your motor units. Hmm. Um, and if you feel which I don't, if you feel that that's key, well, then don't worry about it. You've already got five, you know, four or five reps maximally activated. Uh, you might be familiar with uh, Borg for Gurley's uh, sure. method yeah. of rest pause. You know, it's a type of, of always working within that my know, maximum space. My reps, thank you. Uh, and that's a way of just maximizing the amount of time you're spending contractions in that, you know, max effort space. Um, also explaining to them more physiological aspects like the impact of mechanotransduction. So myocytes, you know, or, or muscle cells grow through a process called mechanotransduction. So then that's the process of turning an absolute mechanical effect into a chemical reaction. And there has to be certain kind of molecular machinery that is able to actually sense physical positions, right? And when these are embedded in cell membranes, they get physically distorted. And that distortion 
enables the chemical reaction to occur on the other side of the membrane. And so that's how a mechanical stimulus actually results in a chemical reaction that takes place within the cell. Well, what people fail to remember is that muscle cells are extremely sensitive to distortion. They're just little bags, phospholipid <laughs> liquid-filled bags, right? Right, right. It, if you, you know, think about the, the microscope footage you see where they're inserting a gene into a cell, you know, and you see how fragile that cell actually is. Well, your cells are fragile and they're extremely sensitive to stretch and to being distorted. And even if you don't have maximum motor unit activation, those cells that are active will distort the membranes of adjacent cells that perhaps aren't active. And that distortion of the membrane will also mm -hmm. trigger a hypertrophic response in those cells. So right. you don't even have to hit maximum activation. You're going to get uniform growth throughout the tissue simply by virtue of these cells are all connected together through the extracellular matrix or whatever. So they're all being traumatized whether they're actually pulling on the rope or not uh, within reason, right? You know, within sure. a certain amount of, of weight load. So, I mean, these kinds of explanations, metabolic stress too, the role of metabolic stress in causing these muscles to grow, having some answer for them when they're doubting whether they're working hard enough because they aren't training to failure will help them accept it and just move forward, you know. But then they thank you later because they're not burned out and injured and, you know, tired of their training. and They can actually right. continue it, you know, right, right. sustainably. I want to circle back real quick. You were talking about how um, strength is definitely going to be compromised if you're not going to failure. Now, is that including even like very low rep ranges? Because you certainly have routines like Bulgarian method where, you know, it's kind of modified now, but where really every day you're going to a non-failure max. Now, that could be 90% of a one rep max, but you're not yeah. really hitting failure. And it seems like a lot of powerlifters actually avoid failure more than a lot of the bodybuilders I know. Yeah. Um, and still obviously get very strong without going to failure. Yeah. Um, at that point, um, you know, when we think of a typical bodybuilder isn't training in the in the three to five rep range, two to five rep range a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're hitting, if you're using your three rep max or whatever, that's essentially the rep before failure. I mean, that's right. That's going to have a strength stimulus because you're maxing out your neurological output and maximally activating all the motor units. And in lower rep ranges, yes, you do have to approach failure to get that environment where everything's going. And, and there is some indication that if the weight is too low, the neurological effect is not the same as hitting failure with heavy weight. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, when we're, we're looking at myoelectric activity in the tissue. So it's even going to failure with lighter weight is not a substitute for heavy training. Right. Um, okay. There's also a psychological aspect for power lifters and Olympic lifters. They don't want to fail a lift. So right. you don't want to train all the time failing to lift the weight you have in your hand. Mm -hmm. It just, I don't know, it, it can affect your mindset, right? So right. they'll work within their, within their range. Um, and, they, and they grow. They're huge. <laughs> you know right, what I mean? Right. And sure. we have data showing that, you know, a, a power lifter's totals are directly proportional to their muscle mass. Right. You know? Yep. So yeah, and that, oh, and that's another myth we want to debunk is the, well, here's our power range. Here's our bodybuilding range. Here's our strength range. That 
HST tried to debunk that as well. I was mm -hmm. promoting old papers showing here we have three different groups doing three different rep ranges. We take a look inside the tissue and all the fibers, one and twos, are growing. So there is no fiber-specific type of effect except if you get really high in, in rep. But, um, yeah, so get rid of the notion of, well, here's our bodybuilding phase, and we do 10 to 12. Right. Uh, I wish people would stop. Strength trainers would stop doing that. Sure. And yeah, so in the uh, the template you gave out, you know, there's the two weeks of 15 reps, the two weeks of 10 reps, the two weeks of five reps. You have been kind of like an optional extra cycle there of yeah. eccentrics. I don't know too many people who have actually done that. Is that something that you tend to want to incorporate? Or it's just if they're still feeling completely recovered, they can add that in? Because I've, I've not done much with eccentric training personally. Um, there comes a point to where... You, you, you know, I, I talk about what's called the repeated bout effect, mm -hmm. right? And the repeated bout effect is simply a, a name for the tissue no longer responding to the same stimulus. And so as the tissue grows, it also adapts in a way that prevents further growth, which is frustrating. That's why we just don't keep growing. Um, there are times when you're not strong enough to overcome the repeated bout effect. So where you would normally benefit if you would just bump up the weight and do some reps, there are limits to your strength and you cannot do it. However, eccentric reps are essentially equivalent to the tissue having to handle heavier weight loads. And it allows certain body parts, because not all exercises are conducive to eccentrics, it allows you to train certain body parts using weight loads that you otherwise couldn't. And with the belief that, that mechanical load is the primary foundation stimulus for muscle tissue to enlarge, that becomes an important tool if in the right hands, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I don't promote it a lot because the way young lifters are, they think, oh, you know, the, the most extreme is always going to be the best. And no, mm -hmm. it, it's not, but if you're experienced in your training and you're really trying to get big and you're heavy, uh, eating a lot, yeah, you should probably put in a week or two of eccentrics on specific body parts and see if you don't get new growth from that. Right, right. And yeah, unfortunately, like you said, we do kind of get sensitized to training. And again, you were one of the people who really popularized that strategic deconditioning phase. Um, now, there are people like you brought up uh, Borgay and when I talked to him, he said that he doesn't really believe that much in deloads. And he says, if you consistently need deloads, then you're probably doing too much. Um, so we, we definitely have people on opposite sides of the spectrum here. So do you still believe in it in the same way you did before? And if so, what is your rationale in 2019 versus 2000? Uh, the rationale is exactly the same. Um, the stimulus of training and loading the muscle causes two adaptive responses. One is to enlarge, to better accommodate the load, and the other one is to become desensitized to that stimulus so that the growth doesn't become unmanageable, right, for the body. And the, the law of stimulus and adaptation lays out that, well, if you want to adapt in the other way, well, you have to not load the muscle, and it will adapt the other way, it will then increase its sensitivity to being loaded. Um, I see a lot of people, quote, talking about deloading, 
uh, I never call it deloading. It's strategic deconditioning because it, you're not lifting anything. <laughs> They're yeah. talking about, well, I'll just lower my reps to 15s and then I'll go back to fives and then I'll lower it to 15s and I'll go back to fives. And it's like, well, that, that could be effective. Um, but for me, I, I want the tissue to approach beginner status following that strategic deconditioning. You know, I, I mean, I want it to cause a lot of soreness. You know, my strength's way down. I feel out of shape and crappy. Um, that's when strategic deconditioning is effective. Uh, but people are paranoid to stop lifting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, they literally just cannot get themselves to not do it. And so that's why a lot of them just kind of either skip it or just lighten the weight. But that's that's not what's intended. The principle is is to decondition the tissue as potently and quickly as you can and then get back to the lifting. Right. Yeah. yeah. And there's, you know, and and. The question remains, well, after after five to ten years, is that going to make a difference? I don't think it would. Mm -hmm. Again, the point of HST is to get you there as quickly as you can rather than saying it's going to bring you to some unnatural level of muscularity. For sure. Yeah. Um, just, just due to a few reasons. I actually just took the longest time I've ever had off from training, which was mm -hmm. about three, three or four weeks. Um, and before that, I've never <laughs> taken how many off years? in my life. In how many years? 15 years. So, yeah, 15 three years. weeks. <laughs> I, I'd say that's obsessive compulsive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, before that, it was, it was always one week at rest. But what I was going to say is, you know, I used to do kind of like a lot of people do. I'll do the deloading and, and I'll say, okay, I'll still do three or four workouts. I'll just keep it light or, you know, whatever. Um, and you know, I don't know how long it's been now, probably four or five years. I just take the week off because I'm like, it, yeah. it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. I'm not gonna, like you also said, I'm going to sensitize myself so that all of a sudden I'm going to, you know, blow up and be huge, but it's also, I'm not going to lose anything, you know? Right. right. Um, it just, and I, I certainly understand the people who say, oh, well, I like to be in the gym. I mean, I like to be in the gym too. Yeah. Um, but my kind of tongue in cheek response is like, you know, get a life, find other things to do in that time that you can, you know, maybe spend a little bit more time with friends or whatever, like, because burnout can happen to anybody. And even for somebody who loves it, you know, some time away from the gym, it gets you kind of chomping at the bit to get back in there. So yeah, no, excellent. I, That's an excellent point. Psychology. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah. And if, if, if you are a power lifter, maybe, and like, you know, you've got a meet coming up, I could see, okay, I, I want to take off, but not take too much time off because right. there's the neurological factors. But right. if you're just doing this, you know, from a lifestyle standpoint, I, I think you might as well just take the week off and, and just, you know, do something that you enjoy or something yeah. else you enjoy. Yeah. And again, it's HST is because I had already been training for many years when I came up with it. Just ingrained in it is a long-term perspective. This is for people who I assume is just part of who they are. They're going to mm -hmm. train because that's how that's the lifestyle that they choose. Again, for those guys that just get a, a you know the fire lit under them and they're running to the gym and and they can't you know every workout is a test of their metal and they want to see if they can make themselves throw up in the squat rack and all that stuff. This is not. <laughs> that's not long-term right. training, you know, that's, right, right. that's exploring what weightlifting can be. But, um, yeah, uh, you know, another issue with the strategic deconditioning and versus what I would call deloading, which is just doing less, 
Uh, research on the repeated bout effect shows that it takes very little work to maintain the repeated bout effect. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to maintain the same level of stress to keep the repeated bout effect present. So even just a little bit of work actually is counterproductive, right? Mm -hmm. So it keeps the tissue conditioned to not grow. Uh, and what people seldom consider is, well, why don't you just stagger your upper and lower body? Uh, let's say you're taking two weeks off of legs and you're still training your upper body because you know, you, you've had them staggered. So your strategic deconditioning doesn't happen for the whole body at the same time. And I know a lot of guys that would love to say when they are caught never training legs, oh, I'm just, I'm de deconditioning <laughs> my legs, you know, it's like, perfect, yeah. okay, fair enough. All right, that's funny. Um, I've, I've heard you somewhere say that part of that deconditioning is why when people take time off and then they come back, they have, you know, it's almost like noob gains again, right, yeah. and they get it. But I would think, don't you think it comes back almost even faster than noob gains? I mean, I feel like it if does. you took... Yeah, I mean, I imagine part of that is like the satellite cell proliferation. Um, yeah. I don't know if there's other mechanisms behind it that you're aware of. Yeah, uh, one that I've read into is there's a fiber type transition that occurs when hypertrophy happens. So, mm -hmm. and I'm sorry, I just because I'm trying to remember, I can't remember. But you have two A's, two B's, mm -hmm. you know. But you get a transition from essentially an inactive type 2 fiber to an active type 2 fiber. And they're slightly different. When you decondition, there isn't a rapid reversal of that fiber type, however. So when you start again, those fibers have already transitioned into a growth responsive fiber type. Mm -hmm. And so to me, that's a, a decent explanation. Other academics have called it, oh, well, there's our muscle memory, right? That's right. what they're interpreting as muscle memory. Well, I might agree, but that transition doesn't stick around very long. It, it eventually, you know reverses back far longer than somebody who hadn't trained for five years, you know, that they're not experiencing that same type of effect. But uh, there's any number of reasons that we don't know why muscle memory may be true. It could be a, a difference in the level of baseline ribosomes or like you say, satellite cell levels, but there has to be something on site that it, that allows growth to be more efficient to experience what you explained as this, you know, growing faster when you come back. Right, right. Cool, man. So um, I kind of like to have like an actionable step for people from the interviews. So if somebody is listening to this and they are in that stage where they can really take advantage of better training, they're kind of stuck in like the bro split, bro training now, what would you say is their first step to kind of get on the more scientific approach? Would they just jump into maybe that HST template or how would they go about kind of transitioning there? Um, <clears throat> well, I have different answers for different people. You know, you, you can tell by who you're talking to about how committed they are. Mm. And if you put out advice that's too difficult, they just won't do it. Yeah. Um, right. Again, the first thing I'd say to people is, Hey, take your diet seriously, uh, measure your food, find out what are you eating and are you eating enough to grow? Mm -hmm. And so even if you're not at your gene genetic potential, it's going to be hard to grow if you aren't eating enough to grow. So your diet should be as strict in the quote off season as it is if you were preparing for a show. But in the off season, you, you're simply eating more of it, but you know exactly how much you eat each day. Um, to me, that's 
absolutely fundamental. Um, the, people may think, oh, well, that's so you have enough protein or whatever. No, the whole hormonal environment in your body will change when you have caloric excess. Uh, you have enhanced insulin, IGF-1, growth hormone, more available testosterone. All of that will happen by virtue of eating enough. Uh, eat not enough, and that all goes away, and you're just kind of normal, and your body's just trying to make do. Mm-hmm. As far as training goes, if you want to do HST, because of the the initial higher rep, lighter loads, you really do need to decondition first. So set aside a couple weeks and say, okay, I'm going to take a couple weeks off, and I'm going to read up on HST, figure out how it works, and then I'm going to start it. But if somebody's going from really consistent heavy training and then immediately just starts doing the 15s, they're going to be disappointed, you know, because it's like, oh, I don't even feel like I'm working out. I'm going back, you know, right, you right. all the time. Yeah. Uh, and it's because you didn't do it right. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, uh, that That's probably what I would say. If you're going to do HST, there's plenty of it out there to read about. Um, I'm happy to send you something that maybe people can download sure. or something. Uh, but to read up on it, start with the deconditioning, then start it. Go from there. Awesome. And, uh, I'll end with a, a quick speed round. So just questions about you. It could be a, a one yeah. word or one sentence answer. Uh, so what is your favorite body part to train? Arms. Arms, of course. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, of course. What are your best lifts or lifts you're most proud of? Uh, I have I have good lats. I can pull things. Okay. Do you have a like a deadlift PR that you're aware of? No, no, not low back. Okay. My low back gave out years ago, so now yeah, I yeah. work around bad low back. But, <laughs> okay. But, uh, uh, yeah, just, you know, like rows. I've always been a strong rower. That's cool, it. cool. And, um, you know, like I said, when I was getting into this, there was HST, and I read your work. Um, Tom Venuto was a big influence for me. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if you know him. Yeah, of um, course. Yeah, yeah. And so when you were getting into this, who was somebody that you looked up to or, you know, that really influenced you? Well, Obviously, I grew up with Weeder magazines, and, you know, I loved Arnold, and I loved all the bigger bodybuilders. Tim Belknap was, like, one of those early big guys. Uh, Quadzilla was huge. And, you know, Tom Platts. Anybody who was larger than normal is was my favorite. Um, I never, you know, I appreciate classic physique, but to me, I'd rather have a freak show. I'm sorry. Yeah. That's just sure. what I like, you know? All right. That's, that's why I lift, but yeah, um, uh, I think too when I when I got into the scientific side, uh, my any kind of idols or mentors kind of went away when mm. I decided science is going to be my mentor. Right. Uh, so now I kind of have some favorite papers that really were influential on the way I thought and and things like that. So when I think back of it, those are the experiences I remember. Is finding a paper that made me go, Oh, huh. You know? Yeah. Cool, man. So I will have a link down below for the charity, um, to that HST webpage. Is there anything else anybody can like find on you? I don't know if you have any like social media accounts or anything like that. People can check. Uh, out. no, there's just the, the think muscle, the HST forum is probably the best place for people to go and talk about HST with guys that have, that know it as good as I do. They can answer any question under the sun. That's probably where, where I would send them. I can send you a link to that. Okay, cool, man. Thanks for talking today. Thank you, Dave. Appreciate it.